0: Good evening, it's good to see everybody here at our midweek service, and we're very thankful for everyone's presence. Tonight I'll be continuing the series I've been kind of going to and coming back to here and there. Uh, Sometime last year, maybe even the year before, I started teaching through uh, each book of the Bible, just doing overviews, just spending one sermon on a book. We started in Genesis, and we've made it now through 1 Samuel, and so tonight we're going to go back to that. And we will consider the book of 2 Samuel uh, in an overview. There are a lot of really good stories. Some of them are not as enjoyable of stories as some of the ones we found in 1 Samuel. There's some very sad stories in 2 Samuel. A lot of really good stories, a lot of good lessons to be learned throughout 2 Samuel. And we'll touch on those hopefully, but we certainly won't be able to go in depth into this book. But I hope that this sermon, this study, will give you a foundation that it will help you if you want to go home and maybe study uh, 2 Samuel more yourself and do some reading within it. That hopefully this will be a good foundation that helps you with that or gives you a little bit more of an overview understanding of this book from the Old Testament. Now, as we talk about 2 Samuel, we do have to remember that we're coming right after 1 Samuel. In fact, when we talked about 1 Samuel, I believe I mentioned that in the original Hebrew compilation of the Old Testament scriptures, they didn't have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it was just the book of Samuel, this, all of First and Second Samuel were together, and then later on, and I believe the Septuagint, and then later, of course, into uh, English translations, that got broken up into First and 2 Samuel. The books were probably written or compiled by about three men, Samuel, of course, being one. But according to a verse we have over in 1 Chronicles 29 and 29, uh, probably Nathan and Gad, who were also prophets. Uh, Samuel, of course, is dead well before most of the events in 2 Samuel occur. So probably Nathan and Gad are those who write the events of 2 Samuel, And those were all put together to give us the history that these books record. But when we talked about 1 Samuel, that book really, or that section, really focused on three men. The first several chapters talked about Samuel. And they uh, brought an end to the era of the judges he served. This is the last judge but he also then kind of brought in the era of the prophets and the kings as he was an old man and the Israelites looked to his sons the sons were not as righteous as he were were not trustworthy like he was and they didn't want his sons to rule over them and so they demanded a king of course that broke Samuel's heart but God told him you go ahead and do as they've asked and God chose first of all Saul and that's who uh, the next portion of the book of first Samuel is about about Saul and his reign. But, of course, he did not do what was right in the sight of God. He was rebellious and stubborn in many ways. And so God kind of gave Israel the king they deserved with Saul, but then he gave them or elected the king that they needed. He had Samuel go and anoint a young man by the name of David, who was just a shepherd at the time, one of the sons of Jesse, to be the next king. And the latter portion of 1 Samuel tells us about David, not David's kingship, but David's life leading up to that. Of course, we have his victory over Goliath, but then his life's filled with a great deal of hardship after that. Saul, while initially honoring David, soon becomes jealous of David and recognizes this is the man that God had spoken of when Samuel had told uh, Saul that the kingdom was going to be given to another, not to Saul's son. And so Saul spends many years trying to kill David, and First Samuel tells us about those years of David as he's on the run from King Saul. Of course, 1 Samuel ends, David uh, is chasing down some enemies that have taken a city of Ziklag where he had been living, and while he's chasing down those enemies and getting back the wives and the children that have been captured, King Saul is fighting a battle with the Philistines, and that ends in disaster. Saul and his sons are killed, and Israel is scattered, and so Saul, who is in the, on the throne of Israel, is now dead. And that's going to lead us right into the book of 2 Samuel. And so 2 Samuel picks up immediately where 1 Samuel leaves off. There's really no gap. There's no separation. It goes right from 1 Samuel into the events that we read in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. And then this book is going to cover just kind of a rough time frame. It covers about 40 years. That's roughly how long David reigned as king in uh, over Israel. Like I mentioned, the author's uh, probably Nathan and Gad, as we see in 2 Chronicles 29 and 29. Now, as for an outline, uh, 1 Samuel, we could divide up into three sections, about three different people. First or 2 Samuel is all about David. It covers the reign of David. And we can really divide this up into uh, two easy sections. The first 10 chapters tell us about David's success. The first 10 chapters are very successful chapters. Now, there's kind of two subsections within that. David does not, when Saul is killed and David becomes king, he actually does not become king immediately over all of the nation. There are several, uh, in fact, most of Israel does not accept David immediately as king. And so he spends the first seven and a half years ruling over Judah only. And that we read about in the first four chapters. But then in chapter five, events transpire and David becomes the king over all of Israel. So chapters 5 through 10 tell us of some events during that time period. Unfortunately, the book of 2 Samuel does not end in chapter 10 with all of David's success. But we come to chapter 11. And perhaps aside from David's battle with Goliath, perhaps the most famous incident of David's life is recorded, a great and tragic uh, misdeed. And that, of course, is his sin with Bathsheba and his uh, subsequent attempt to cover it up. That's told about in chapters 11 and 12, And then the remainder of the book really details a lot of the hardships that David faced. For such a successful beginning, David had success in the end of his reign also, but it was also besought by a great deal of heartache and trial and trouble as a direct result of his great failure. And then the final few chapters. I don't know if they, they don't all tell of David's failures. There is one at the very end. But chapters 21 through 24 kind of serve as an appendix, you might say, with some short stories and a few different things that are added there. And We'll mention those briefly when we get to them. So let's just go over these, again, in overview fashion and talk about the events that take place. Chapter 1, we pick up, uh, David learns about Saul's death. Now, the man that comes to David is in for a rude awakening, he kind of rejoices and surely believes he's going to get a a prize for telling David what he does. He claims that he actually struck down Saul so that Saul died, and for this the man ends up being executed. We see David, instead of rejoicing that the man who had uh, spent so much energy and effort trying to kill David, David lamented, the loss of Saul, and of course, Saul's sons, which included Jonathan, David's very dear friend. And so, we see from David a very different man from the very beginning of his reign than what you would anticipate from most earthly rulers. Most men in David's positions would have been overjoyed that Saul was dead. Here's a man who hated him, here's a man that stood between him and power, and finally it's David's turn. Yet David was a merciful man. Although David was a man of war, David was certainly a warrior. He was a warrior, but he also had a tender and a merciful heart. I think that says a great deal about David, and it sets an incredible example for the children of God today. So David learns about Saul's death, and then in chapter 2, David does not just immediately try and usurp the throne. But one of the things that we find in chapter two, and this is found throughout David's life, David inquires of the Lord what to do. Now, David could have easily thought, finally, my time has come. I'm going to go and take the kingdom. But one of the wonderful attributes about David is he was constantly seeking the Lord's guidance. I think this is one of the things that makes David the man that he is. By the way, the great failures that we see in David's life come when he doesn't do this. Uh, very different from Saul, who just kind of did things the way he wanted to, and when he wanted to. Even when it seems ripe for David's opportunity, he inquires of the Lord. Of course, the Lord tells him to go up to Hebron, and he goes up there. This is kind of the key city for Judah, the tribe, the clan of Judah at this time. And Judah accepts him, and they appoint him to be their king. Now, we would think that maybe this would just Set things well and that David would reign over the entire kingdom, but that's not what happens. There's a few people who have survived the battle um, and some of Saul's men. One is the commander of Saul's army, a man named Abner, who was one of Saul's cousins. Now, this man has survived. I don't know how he survived the battle or why, but he did. But Instead of recognizing David as the king, he tries to hold on to the kingdom for the name of Saul. And he sets up Saul's last one of Saul's last sons, a man named Ishbosheth, uh, who's I think Saul's youngest son, if I remember correctly, probably hadn't been taken to the battle. He takes him and he makes him the king of Israel. And actually the rest of Israel recognizes Abner and Ishbosheth. And so you have, even before the division of the kingdom later, you have Judah and the other tribes, the northern tribes, arrayed against Judah. And this condition actually lasts for about seven and a half years. You can see the territory on this map. David just rules in this area, and the rest falls under Ishbosheth, whose capital is across the Jordan River here in the city of Mahanaim. And Ishbosheth is kind of a token king. He has no real leadership ability. He doesn't seem to be a warrior. For all intents and purposes, Abner is the one who has to run and rule this kingdom. But he has set up Saul's son, who he would have said was the heir, to be the king. Now during this time period, there's war between Judah and Israel. And there is a battle at Gibeon. And there's three men uh, who are nephews of David. If you were here during Kevin's Meeting Kevin gave an excellent lesson on Joab, who was one of the sons of Zeruiah. That's one of David's sisters, so this was um, this was David's nephew, and Joab would end up being David's commander of his army, and he was a great, mighty man of war. He had some very serious problems, but when it came to war and battle, he was an incredible individual. He had two brothers as well, but during this battle, um, Abner ends up trying to flee, and these brothers are chasing him, and I believe it is Asahel that chases him down, and while Abner tries to get him to stop chasing him, he won't, and finally he turns and ends up killing Asahel in this battle. Well, finally the armies go their separate ways. Israel's been roundly defeated. Judah has won the battle, but Joab has lost a brother, and he's never going to forget that. Later in chapter 3, we find that Ab, something happens between Abner and Ishbosheth. Apparently, there was a concubine of Saul's that Abner was in love with or desired, and he asked, asked Ishbosheth to be able to marry this woman, and Ishbosheth wouldn't do it. He wouldn't give Abner that privilege. Well, this kind of made Abner angry. He's done all this for Ishbosheth. He's set him up as king, he's given him a kingdom, he's fighting a war on his behalf, and Ishbosheth won't give him what he wants. And so he finally decides he's had enough. He probably sees the writing on the wall anyway. And so he decides that it's time to go ahead and turn the kingdom over to David. And he goes down and he meets with David. And he lets him know that he's ready to turn the kingdom over. And here again, David might shock us. David is merciful. And David is overjoyed that there can be peace and there can be unity. And he's ready to forgive Abner. And so he lets Abner go on his way of course, Joab gets back to the city right after Abner has left and learns about this peace treaty and learns that Abner is going to get off scot-free. And so he concocts a plan to bring Abner back to the city and tricks him, and he ends up murdering Abner uh, in vengeance for his brother that had been killed in battle. Now, David disavows this act and openly mourns and weeps for Abner. And so it becomes very clear to the nation that David was not just trying to have Abner assassinated, but that he truly was a merciful man and a compassionate man. Well, with Abner gone, the rest of the people probably begin to see that their kingdom under ish cannot possibly be sustained. In fact, two of ish commanders end up assassinating the man, and they bring his head to David, and again much like the individual who came to David with the news of Saul's death they probably thought they were going to be rewarded they've ended the civil war so to speak they've killed the enemy and yet these men end up executed for daring to lay a hand on Ishbosheth Saul's son and the king of Israel but there is no king of Israel now and so the tri- the leaders of all the clans they recognize it's time to unite and they come and in chapter 5 they anoint David as the king over all israel now david's been reigning in hebron at this point but he's going to uh, he's going to change where he goes at this point um let me look back so hebron is down here in the far south there's this city that's noted as Jabus, right in between the territory of israel and uh, judah of course, this is actually Jerusalem. They were the Jebusites that, for some reason, the Israelites had never been able to get out of the city of Jabus. They had never been able to truly conquer this city. And David comes to this city to take it. And they taunt David, and they mock him that their city is impregnable. But chapter 5 recounts how David and his armies, they take over this city. And David makes Jerusalem the capital city of the nation. And, of course, we all know that Jerusalem is going to be a key point, a key geographical place for the remainder of the biblical narrative. And so David has now set his city, his capital city, up in Jerusalem. Now there's a few other stories in chapter 5, but David doesn't just make Jerusalem the capital politically. In chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Now it's still sitting in a town called Kiriath-Jerim. That's where it had been dropped after, if you remember in 1 Samuel, the ark had actually been captured for a while by the, by the Philistines. That brought nothing but trouble for the Philistines as God gave plagues to them for that. And so they sent it back to Israel and it ended up in this city of Kiriath-Jerim. But wherever the ark of the covenant was, that's really where the tabernacle was supposed to be. Wherever that was, was that's where the people were really supposed to go and worship And David didn't want a capital city that was just about politics or economics or military strength. He wanted the center of the nation to be based around God. And that's really the way it was supposed to be. And so David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And we read about that in chapter 6. Of course, there's some good lessons there. There's a story you've probably heard many times. Unfortunately, the first time they try to do so, they put the ark on a cart led by oxen. That's not the way that the ark of the covenant was supposed to be carried according to the law. And at one point, one of the oxen stumbles and the ark seems to be tipping and a man named Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark and touches it and he's struck dead by God immediately. And so for a few months it stays and David weeps and mourns and prays and learns the mistakes that they had made and then they go back and instead of giving up, are getting angry at God, they correct what they've done. And they figure out how they're supposed to transport the ark, and they carry it correctly. And they get the ark over to Jerusalem. And so the tabernacle is now in Jerusalem. And now Jerusalem is not just a political center for Israel, but it is the religious center for Israel as well. Then in chapter 7, now that the ark of the covenant is in Jerusalem, at some point David began to feel a little guilty. See, he had built a house of cedar. He had this nice house, probably like a palace, uh, a wonderful place to live. But when he went to offer sacrifices or he watched the sacrificial system, God's ark is still just in this tent. This is still the same tent that's been built back during the days of Moses, a thing that was meant to be able to take it up and carried. And David feels a little guilty about having this nice palatial home and the so-called house of God is just this tent. And so he wants to build a temple for God. And at first, the prophet that speaks with him tells him that that's okay, and he can do that, and that he should build a tent. But before Nathan gets very far, he's told to go back to David, and that he is not going to be allowed to build this temple. Later on, when we read about Solomon building the temple, we learn the reason was because David, as great of a man and as righteous of a man as he was, was He was a man of war. He was a man of bloodshed. And so God did not allow David to build the temple. He was going to have David's son Solomon build the temple. But I do want to go ahead and read several verses here in chapter 7 because this is one of the key passages of the Old Testament because God makes a covenant with David that has messianic implications. This is an unveiling of God's plan here in the grand scheme of redemption. In verse 8, it says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appoint judges, uh, appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now that's important. That's interesting. David had been wanting to make a house for God, but God says, "I'm going to make you a house." Verse twelve. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now there's some nuance to this covenant that God makes, but there are two key aspects to it. First of all, there is the earthly physical side of David's lineage. What God is promising David here is the throne is always going to remain in David's household. Now Saul had proven unfaithful, and because of that, the throne was removed from Saul's household. When he died, it did not go to Jonathan or one of his other sons. And later on in the kingdom of Israel, when they break off of Judah, they're going to have other kings who are not from the tri- who are not of David's offspring. And that, those reigns might go for a generation or two, and then a new king's going to conquer. But in Judah, it was always a son of David. In fact, that's, from this time forward, the only rightful king that can reign in Judah And in Jerusalem is a descendant of David. Now, you can tell there that this is also speaking, at least in part, about physical, literal sons of David, like Solomon and Rehoboam and others, that that lineage, because it speaks about iniquity. And God is saying that, yes, if they sin, and many of David's descendants did sin and went off into idolatry and other forms of wickedness, God says, I will punish them. But he promises David, but whatever they do, The throne will always remain in your house. And I'm going to establish a throne for your house forever. But at the very beginning, it seems that God is speaking about a very specific descendant of David and something greater than Solomon, greater than Hezekiah, greater than any of the great kings that would come after David. Because he says, he shall build a house for my name. Of course, Solomon did that, but Jesus did that even greater. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, in a way, all of the kings of Israel, all the kings that came from David, were considered to be God's sons. But this was most fully fulfilled, of course, in Jesus. And Jesus is the only one that can truly be said to have established an eternal and everlasting kingdom. Solomon's kingdom was the greatest of all of David's descendants when it comes to economics and prosperity and peace and grandeur. But Solomon died, and it was no longer his kingdom. And his son Rehoboam made some foolish choices and lost most of the kingdom. But Jesus established a kingdom that was a spiritual kingdom, and a kingdom that still stands and always will. And so, herein, we see one of the great promises of the Old Testament. That this is, if you go back and go all the way back to Genesis, in Genesis 3, God promised that from the seed of woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And then we continue on, and we don't know much more about that promise other than there's one coming who will be born of a woman. And then we meet Abraham, and we find, okay, it's going to be from Abraham's seed and descendants that one comes who brings worldwide blessing to all the families of the earth. And we go from there, and we find out that it's going to be from the tribe of Judah and some of the prophecies that we read about there in Genesis. But then we keep going through years and years of history, and now finally we narrow that a little further, and it's going to be one of David's descendants. And so when we look for the Messiah, that's exactly who we should be looking for, and of course that is Jesus. Now, David, uh, in the last few chapters here in this first section, as it talks about David reigning, we read about some of David's military victories, and here's a map from Uh, a study Bible that shows, I don't know if you can see the color very well, but this gray area right here is Israel when David took over. And then the green area is Israel by the end of David's reign. And so you can see he's able to conquer Edom and Moab and Ammon and Syria and Philistia and Amalek. All of these areas that had been at war with Israel or had opposed Israel, they come under servitude to Israel under David's reign. So this sets up an era of peace that Solomon's going to be able to take and expand the kingdom even further and make the kingdom even greater. Now tucked in between chapters 8 and 10 is a beautiful story of Mephibosheth, another story that shows David's compassion. We don't have time to get into that right now. I'm sure you've heard of that. And it's a beautiful story of David's mercy and compassion. But then we come to the second portion of this book, And chapters 11 and 12 cover David's sin and repentance. I think we all know the story very well. In chapter 11, David's armies have gone out to war, but David, for whatever reason, whether it be he's getting older, whether the armies want him to stay in for his safety, or whether he just got tired of going out and fighting battles and liked the luxury of his palace, we're not really told. We're just told that in the spring, his armies go out, but he stays at home. And one evening as he's out walking about, he looks and he's able to see a beautiful woman and she's bathing and David, of course, begins to lust after this woman and has her brought to him and this is Bathsheba. He lies with her, commits adultery and we're not told much about Bathsheba. Some people take a lot of issue with that. The Bible remains silent. I think we should respect the silence. We don't know whether she was complicit. We don't know if she was not. We can make all sorts of speculations But there's no point in making speculations about Bathsheba and her part in this. David is the one who is focused on. He's the man who was in charge and had the power, and he commits adultery. Of course, not long, or at some point after that, it becomes known to Bathsheba that she's pregnant by adultery, and it's going to be very clear that she's committed adultery because Uriah has been off fighting a battle. He hasn't been home. The law, of course, is going to require some heavy penalty of Bathsheba if the people find out that she's Pregnant through adultery. So she lets David know, and David tries to cover the whole thing up. He brings Uriah back from the front. He tries to get Uriah drunk and tries to get Uriah to go home, hoping that he would sleep with his wife, and thus everyone would just suspect that later on, when Bathsheba gives birth, well, this was when Uriah came home that all this happened. But Uriah is an incredibly honorable man, and he's not going to go enjoy the comforts at home while his comrades are off on the front fighting battles. And David tries and tries, but ultimately he realizes this isn't going to work. And so instead he sends a letter by Uriah's own hand to Joab, who will do just about anything David tells him to do. And Joab is given a note to basically put Uriah in the front lines in the heaviest of battle and make sure that Uriah is killed in battle. And Joab does this. He leads an attack that should never have been led. He puts Uriah up in front. By the way, there are probably many others who died because of this. But Uriah is killed in the action. Joab sends a messenger back to David. David finds out Bathsheba's in mourning. And David swoops in and is able to bring her in. And now looks compassionate. And hopefully this whole thing has been covered over. Except God knows exactly what has happened. And in chapter 12, God sends Nathan the prophet. And you want to talk about a tough job and a brave man who might not get his credit all the time. Nathan had an incredibly challenging job. If David wanted to, David could have killed Nathan. He could have acted like Saul or many of the other kings that Israel would later have. But Nathan comes and he tells a parable. He tells about a man who had just, just this one little ewe lamb that he loved and adored. But his neighbor, who had all sorts of sheep and flocks, but he had a visitor come. And instead of killing one of his own sheep, he went and stole this sheep, this one ewe lamb, and slaughtered it so that he could feed it to his guests. And David's enraged. And David says the man should die, and he's going to pay multiple times over for the sheep. And Nathan looks at David, and he says, you're the man. You are the one who has done this. And David, who I think's heart had convicted him long before this, in fact, when you read, I believe it's Psalm 51, and some of the other penitential psalms of of David's, I think David's conscience had been eating at him for a very long time at this point. And when Nathan gives this story that moves David, and then David recognizes head-on his guilt, David breaks down. David confesses his fault, and David seeks to repent. And the Lord forgives David. There's a very important lesson that we learn in all of this story. God is willing to forgive us when we repent of our sins. And one day, on heaven's shores, all of the consequences of evil will be nothing but an afterthought. But while we're here on this earth, we will often face the consequences of our evil choices. And God promises David through Nathan. That there are going to be some severe consequences that come about. Because of this thing that David has done. First of all God says that the sword will never depart from David's house. David had spent his life up to this point fighting battles to bring peace to the kingdom. To make the kingdom uh, to put down its enemies. David could have lived the latter part of his years in peace. But now he's going to face violence until the end of his days. And the saddest part of that is that adversity is not going to come from the Philistines and the Moabites and the Syrians. It's going to come from David's own house. David's actions are going to bring problems from within his own home. God says another man is going to lie with your wives in the sight of all men. David had done a despicable and a deplorable thing. And he was going to be the recipient of disip- despicable and deplorable things. And perhaps saddest of all for David, the child of that affair was going to die. And that's exactly what happens. Now, I don't want to make too many comments about this. but I know that's a part that a lot of people, especially critics of the Bible, take issue with. And they say, well, why did God punish this little child? Why did this baby that at this point a lot of historians or commentators believe is probably around six or seven months old, This baby didn't do anything to deserve death. That's absolutely right. This baby didn't do anything to deserve death. I don't believe God's just being malevolent. Or just inflicting pain for no reason. Sometimes we don't understand all of the reasons why God does what he does. This may have been an act of mercy in one aspect that we can't possibly know about. But it also teaches us an incredible lesson Sometimes our sins have devastating consequences on others. Sometimes our sinful choices can ruin the lives of other people. and You can think of all sorts of examples where you've probably known that to happen. Did this baby deserve to die? Absolutely not. But it's David's sin that caused it. Imagine the heartache that that must have brought to David as he spent those final days fasting and weeping and praying and knowing that it was his fault. Sin has terrible consequences. Now within that story, and this is what a lot of the critics of the Bible don't accept. They just look at the fact that God allowed an innocent baby to die and that's all they look at. But David was a bigger man than that. David could have gotten very angry at God. He may have said, look, I did a bad thing, but how is it any worse than this? You're killing an innocent baby. But when that baby finally died, David got up and washed his face and he ate and his servants were nervous and they thought, what is going on here? He's, he's been fasting all this time. And David just explained to them, he said, while the child was alive, there was a chance. There was a chance that through prayer, God might have changed his mind. They said, but there's no more chance. The baby is dead, the baby is gone, but that doesn't mean it's the end. And David said, That child will not return to me, but I will return to it. See, there's that hope of eternity, that eternal perspective. And that's part of what made David a great, great man. One of the reasons he was over to overcome great challenges, even the challenges of his own sinfulness. Because through repentance and forgiveness, he was able to look to God's great mercy that he would be able to enjoy in eternity. But in this picture, in this story, we have a picture-perfect illustration of what James tells us in James 1. And he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's exactly what happens in David's story in a very literal aspect. And lessons abundant that we can learn from this tragic tale. Well, chapters 13 through 20 tell of really the fulfillment of the rest of God's words, that the sword will never depart, that there will be trouble within his own house. It all begins in chapter 13 with a couple of David's children. He has a son, his oldest son, his firstborn son, Amnon has a half-sister, Tamar. Tamar is David's daughter by a different mother, one of his other wives. And Tamar apparently is a very beautiful woman. And Amnon, even though the law would forbid a union between Amnon and Tamar, he appears to be a lustful man. He desires this half-sister of his. He has a very wicked friend who gives him some terrible advice. It seems Amnon is one of those that's kind of he knows what's right, but he wants what's wrong, and it almost makes him sick trying to do what's right. Or some people that live their lives that way. They know what the Bible says, but it just makes them sick to not be able to go out and commit the sin that they want to. Well, one of his friends has no problems with that. He says, here's what you do. You don't need to be worried about this. You're the king's son. You should be able to do what you want. So what you need to do Let's pretend like you're sick and request that Tamar come and take care of you. And then you'll be able to do what you want with her. And that's exactly what this despicable man does. He pretends to be sick. He requests his half-sister to come care for him. She does this lovingly. And and, uh, she goes and is taking care of him. And the man rapes his half-sister. Well, after this, he's disgusted probably with himself at this act. And it makes him loathe her. And so he's just wanting to put her away. And her David, we're told in this story, is angry with Amnon, but he doesn't do anything about it. But there's another character, one of, this is Tamar's full-blooded brother, his name is Absalom. And Absalom tells her, don't worry about it, and time goes on. And a couple years later, as Absalom has waited and made his plans, he invites all of David's children to this feast. And everything seems to have been again covered over. and Going well. And there Absalom kills Amnon in cold blood. Seeking justice. He just slays the man. Well David's angry with Absalom now. But again he's not going to do anything too drastic. But uh, Absalom flees to another place. And David just lets him sit there. And makes it known he can't come back. Well in chapter 14. Joab recognizes in David that David longs for his son, but won't bring him back. And so Joab concocts a a plan to get Absalom back to the kingdom. And David ultimately gives in to Joab. And Absalom's allowed to return to Jerusalem, but he's not allowed to come into the presence of the king. But he's at least back in the king's city. And Absalom acts like the perfect penitential son in many ways, except behind the scenes, he's. Bringing people to his view, and he's going down to the gates, and before people can get to the king, he's saying, "Well, what's your problem?" And they'll tell him. He said, "Oh, you know, if I was king, I would take that very seriously. I would hear your case. It's too bad that King David won't listen to you." And he begins to turn the hearts of the people to himself, and then finally, he has a big enough following, and he's down in Hebron, David's old capital city, and it becomes apparent that he's getting ready to launch an attack. Against David. And David learns about it just in time in chapter 15. He and some of his followers flee Jerusalem. Here's David, the king of Israel, has to flee his own city and barely escape with his life. There's one man that stays behind who's a friend of David, but proposes to be a friend of Absalom. By the way, this is where another one of those prophecies comes true. Absalom sets up a tent at the top of the palace. And he has David's concubine sent in there, and he goes in and he lies with them, where all the city knows exactly what's happening. Now, this is a despicable act by Absalom. And this man's an evil man. He's angry at his half brother that he killed. He's angry at David, but now he's behaving even worse. But all that God has said is coming true. And David surely is feeling the brunt of the punishment. He's feeling the guilt of his sins, and he's feeling the consequences of his sins, even these years later well there's this friend of david's that gives counsel to absalom to wait one of absalom's counselors says go after him go now don't give him a chance to get set up but this man says no you need to wait and absalom listens to this man and gives david a chance to get to maharam that's where ishboseth used to rule and be able to gather his forces but it doesn't take too long and absalom marches out and there's a battle Now, the commanders will not let David go into this battle, but Joab and two others lead three companies, and they fight with Absalom's men in the forests of Ephraim. And there's a great battle that day. Now, David, and you probably remember this from Kevin's lesson, David had given strict instructions, you do not kill Absalom. You win this war, you capture him, but you do not kill him. And I can't imagine, but the fact that one, David's heart longed for his son. Whatever his son had done, it was still his son. And that's what most people think. And I think that's natural that that was part of David's reasoning. But I can't help but also think that David, once Absalom spared, because David remembers this is all partially David's fault. The reason that the sword would not depart from his house, the reason it would come from his own household, was because of David's mistakes is why they're here. Now that doesn't justify Absalom, but surely David can see that. Well, Joab, thinking from a very earthly perspective, probably does the right thing, politically speaking. He recognizes Absalom's a worthless fellow. He realizes this Absalom's going to be nothing but trouble. He's probably pretty mad at Absalom because he's the one that got Absalom back in the first place. And so when Absalom gets caught up by his hair in a thicket and can't go anywhere, And others were going to spare his life. He goes and he fills them full of arrows and spears. And he kills Absalom. And again David bemoans this fact. But the kingdom is restored. Now not all is well. You can read in chapters 19 and 20. There's some debate between Judah and the other tribes. Over who gets to escort David back into Jerusalem. And the other tribes other than Judah. A man named Sheba rises up. And he leads them off against David. But this one squelched pretty quickly. David sends Joab and the other commanders after them, and they make pretty quick and short work of this rebellion. And so finally the kingdom is returned to wholeness and peace. And then we come to chapter 21, and from this point forward, again, we just have a few kind of collections at the end of David's reign. We won't go into these. There's a story about David avenging the Gibeonites. You can read about why they needed avenging and who they were. Uh, Chapter 22 is a song of deliverance. By the way, this is almost identical in many parts to Psalm 18. What I read was that Psalm 18 was probably adapted to actual worship use as a psalm, whereas uh, chapter 22 of 2 Samuel is more David's personal wording. That accounts for some of the difference, but it's a beautiful, beautiful poem, a beautiful song. And then chapter 23 lists... Uh, Some of the final words of David, some details about his mighty men. But then chapter 24 is an important chapter. It's one that I always feel like I need to study more and and maybe get up a lesson on this sometime. Uh, Again, one of the famous stories about David, one of his big failures. There's a time where for some reason David decides to take a census. And Joab is the one that tells David not to do this. And it's never really explained fully why this was wrong. Other than I think the fact that David, instead of trusting in God for once in his life, is trusting in his own power and his might. And he's numbering the people to see his power. And David know, or Joab knows David shouldn't do this. And he, he warns him against it. He says, don't do this. But David doesn't listen. And Joab again, you know, Joab's an interesting character. I always feel, I just always think Joab's there. But then Joab gives way to David. The time that he shouldn't give way to David. And he goes and he numbers the people. And then David realizes his sin. He's rebuked. And one of the prophets comes to him. And this is Gad. And he gives David three options. There's going to be a punishment for this sin. And David's given three options. He can have three years of famine. Or he can have three months of running from his enemies. Or he can have three days of a plague. Now... Maybe it's because it's the shortest, but what David says, and I think this is probably the real reason what he says, he says he trusts God more than men. He's run from his enemies before. He says, I would rather be in the hands of God than the hands of men. And a plague strike breaks out in Israel. And this is no small plague. 70,000 people die by this plague. And somehow David is allowed to see a supernatural thing He is there in his palace in Jerusalem and he's looking out and he's able to see the angel of the Lord that is coming to strike Jerusalem. It has been ravaging the people of Israel and Jerusalem is in the crosshairs. But God says to the angel to stop. God is ready to relent. He has met out the punishment and he is ready to stop. And David cries out at this time. And he basically says, these are just sheep. And he asks God to take it from him. But God doesn't just take David's life. Instead, he demands that David offer a sacrifice. And so he is told to go to a threshing floor owned by a Jebusite. Apparently, one of these people maybe that survived from the city of Jerusalem originally. His name is and He owns a threshing floor. And God says, you go there. And you build an altar, and you offer a sacrifice, and this will all stop. And David goes, and this man Arunya, when he sees David and hears, he's ready to give the threshing floor to David. That's incredible. He's giving up his livelihood. But David demonstrates an amazing thing. He says, no, he says, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. That's an attitude we all need to learn from. Some people want a cheap religion or a free religion. David had no desire to take part in that. David recognized he had been blessed by God more than he deserved. And he would not offer worship to God that cost him nothing. And so he paid the full price for that threshing floor. And there he offered sacrifices to God. And the plague ceased. Now, why did God have David go to this piece of land? What was so important about this threshing floor of Arunya? Well, actually it was located in a very interesting and important place. We're told about it in 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1. This is David's son Solomon. When he began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Where the Lord had appeared to David his father. At the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now you should recognize another name there. So this threshing floor becomes where the temple is going to be built. So this is going to not just be where David offers sacrifice. But we're all sacrificed from this point until the time of Jesus is going to end up being made at the temple grounds. But notice the other name of what this is. This is Mount Moriah. You've read that in the Bible before back in Genesis chapter 22 when God said to Abraham to take his son Isaac and you go to Mount Moriah and there you offer him to me. And of course that's where he takes Isaac up and he has the knife lifted when God st- the angel stays his hand And instead a ram caught in the thickets is provided as a sacrifice. This is an incredible place. An important place. Years and years ago Abraham had proven his faithfulness. And now David has proven his faithfulness and his penitence. There's sacrifices that are made. The temple is going to be here. And of course it's here where Jesus is going to do so much of his ministry. And it's somewhere just outside the gates of this mountain that Jesus is going to be put on a cross Just outside the city of Jerusalem. And is going to become the ultimate sacrifice. There he's also going to be raised. And where later he's going to ascend after that. And sit down at the right hand of God. Establishing the kingdom that God had promised to David. A kingdom that would last forever. So all these stories are interesting. David provides an incredible character study. But this is really all setting up the greater and grander story of God's redemptive plan through Jesus, the King, and His kingdom. Well, we'll end the study there. I've gone more than long enough. I hope that that's helpful, though, in understanding the book of 2 Samuel and gives you some things to think about or maybe some areas that you would like to go and study further. It's a wonderful book. Unfortunately, it's a sad book in many parts, but there's incredible wonderful lessons for us to all learn from as we seek to follow God like David did. Not perfectly but like David we should be willing to repent and correct our faults when we are in the wrong. as we bring the lesson to a close perhaps there's one here who needs to obey the gospel. If you're ready to come believing and repenting of your sins if you're ready to confess Jesus is the Son of God then you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins to be washed of them and so that you can become a child of God. Or if there's a Christian who would like the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. So we invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.